millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 hello. I'm Gary Bain. I'm with the... the, uh, Me. Formidable Peter Hart. And uh, I'd just like to say, Pete, today is something special. Today is our 100th podcast we must be millionaires no uh we do now have buy me a coffee if you'd like to buy us a coffee if you're enjoying the podcast and how are and we doing on that well we've got a pound each for every episode <laughs> i'm retiring oh, i am retired yeah anyway that... so to mark our hundredth episode pete today we're going to do uh the air war Battle of Arras. And this is the first of, I think it's about 12 episodes on the Battle of Arras. Now, the, we, we've well, got that'd to... be about 12 quid then. <laughs> it's well worth the effort. And what, what, what are we doing? At, what, the, the thing is, that the, the bloody April is what everybody knows. The Battle of Arras is bloody April to the Royal Flying Corps. And, and it's, a, it's, as the tale sometimes told, it's a heroic story of our brave, untrained lads flying over the lines for no good reason, being met by vicious, murderous bastards like that. Evil, evil Gary Baron Manfred von Richthofen and other Huns and those bastards shoot down our brave lads and the evil General Trenchard keeps sending them off. <laughs> uh, but he's suffering too because he's having to sit at his big plastic desk and ride around in his Rolls Royce. That is a terrible fate that he's going. You remember that? I remember that. <laughs> anyway, the, the the thing is that, that we don't think that's what happened at all. And and this series of podcasts is looking at. Uh, 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 why it was fought and then we're looking at everything about the battle uh, and I hope it'll be a really interesting series of podcasts uh, Air War Battle of Arras so, so, so what's, what's going, going on, on? So, what's going what's on what, what's that song how does it go you, you're good at singing songs. sing what's going on by Marvin Gaye for me what's going on I'm too young I've just thought, I've just realised wasn't that on the album Sexual Healing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely wouldn't know. Anyway, getting on. Air battles like the bloody April 1917, they just happen, don't they? They just, they just, just come happen. along. They just happen. Happen apropos of nothing, you mean? Yeah. No, no. Um, the, the, the Royal Flying Corps is... What is it? What, what's the important word other than royal and flying in that name? Well, it's a corps. It's a so corps. it's got little or no freedom of action. It's completely dominated... As it in its duty, uh, because it it had to fill the requirements of the army. It's it had part no choice. Of it. It's part of the army. Um, it's, it's not a separate military. Well, not service. yet. No, no. Uh, that's an April Fool's Day, nineteen eighteen. The RAF formed. Um, I'm saying uh, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> now. Um, um, there's also uh, one thing I don't talk about obsolescent aircraft, but uh, do the uh, do the men at the front have any power to change the tools of their trade? You think, Gary? No, they've got to fight and often die in in the aircraft that they've been supplied with. Why? Them. Why? Well, we've mentioned this before, Pete. New aircraft they take many months, sometimes years, to reach the battlefront, and uh, you know. So, so why? I guess. And the RFC and the and let's not forget the uh, Royal Naval Air Service forced into action with inferior or obsolescent aircraft in the spring of 1917. What's the answer, Pete? What's the answer? Well, the answer lies with the French. 
That's ah. French high command. Patui, we'd normally go, except that we're actually great admirers we of like the French. French. Uh, although there is something about to happen to the French command, which isn't quite so good. Look, so what? 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 what so who's it, who is the French commander in chief at, uh, at the end of nineteen sixteen? Well, the the, the plans uh, for nineteen seventeen they're originally conceived by the then French commander in chief, who's General Joseph Joffre. Now, he'd got a pretty good relationship with Haig, hadn't he? I mean, it's not exactly bosom pals, but they've got a working relationship, haven't they? Yeah, they had. And, and Joffre, he, he envisaged pressing hard on the Western Front during the winter, at least so far as the weather permitted. Wintery stuff, yeah. And the, the, the reason was to keep up the pressure on the Germans. And then what were they going to do? Well, then they'd look to thrust hard <laughs> in coordinated British and French offensive on either side of the Somme battlefield. So, the uh, British, they were to attack the German salient enclosed between the Ancre and the Scarp rivers after first capturing the heights of the Vimy Ridge. That will become the Battle of Arras. Uh, the French were to attack first to the south between the Somme and the, the Wies rivers. Wies? Wies. Wies. Wies, yeah. Uh, and, and then their major effort would be along the River Aisne. Uh, the British proposed to follow this up with something that was close to Haig's heart. What was that? Well, he wanted uh, a summer offensive in Flanders. Why? Well, <laughs> it's, it's a question of That's uh, clearly not in the notes, Reed. That's clearly not a question not. of strategic objectives. There were fewer in the Somme area, in Haig's mind. None. None. And uh, he, he felt that, you know, they could make more of a difference to winning the war. Submarine bases and the Rulers Railway uh, Junction just behind. Which I was just about to come on to. I know you were, but I thought I'd, if I interrupted you, I could make you look a bit dumb. Now, Joffre's proposals, they'd all been agreed at the uh, Chantilly Conference. Chantilly lays, and it lays, and I'm definitely lays. too young. <laughs> Big bopper. Um, of, the, was... <laughs> of the 15th of November 1916. You're being particularly difficult today, Pete, if you don't I'm mind I'm in a good saying. mood. Oh, we'll soon change that. So, uh, what, what are, so that, those proposals are agreed. Um, now, the Germans, they, I presume, they just laid back and... Uh, thought of England <laughs> <laughs> well they probably did think of England but uh, of course not you've got another party there haven't you you've got the Germans what are they going to do well they took radical action and they slowly began to recast their overall defensive tactics to take account the increasing sophistication and weight of British assaults Ah, so no, we've said is, you've again, said this, yeah, Big Dipper. Yeah. It's not just one Big Dipper, it's two Big Dippers, and it's all relative. So we can be getting better, but now the Germans are doing something. So what are they going to do? Well, instead of a static system of front lines, which would be defended to the death and endlessly contested through incessant counterattacks, they introduced the idea of an elastic defence system. Elastic defence system. The emphasis switched to strong points and concrete pillboxes across a deep battle zone with masses of barbed wire defences covered by the interlinked fields of fire of their machine gun fire. So their barbed wire and the machine gun fire would sort of cover huge areas. There would be less people at right of the front. So would the frontline troops hold this to the death? No, from now on they're permitted to retreat when a position becomes indefensible rather than be overrun and, and die. die. <laughs> Meanwhile, the counter-attack divisions were lurking in the rear areas. I like the idea of this. They're lurking in the rear areas. I'm not sure what you're thinking of here, uh, Let's move swiftly on. <laughs> they're being held back only to strike if the British appear to be likely to break out of the uh, front-line zone, when, of course, the British attacking troops would be at their weakest. Well, having... because they battled all the way through all these pillboxes, barbed wire, machine guns and all the rest of it. And they're now beyond the range of their artillery. Their own field artillery. Yeah. So, of course, they're not having the concentrated uh, uh, barrages, standing barrages, creeping barrages, all those other things that have been developed during the Somme. Mm. Wow. wow. Now, there wow. comes a bit of a surprise... Am I going to have a surprise? After more than two years as the French commander-in-chief, Joffre seemed like a permanent fixture. But in December 1916, he was replaced by General Robert Nivelle. Now, there's two things wrong with him. Or Robert. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that he's part Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> now, war weariness had taken its toll on the French and new solutions, new saviours... Are required. And that's what Nivelle's seen to be. He's done really well in the closing stages of the Battle of Verdun, and he did. Um, he, he, 
it, it made him. How, how would I phrase this if I was being polite? Uh, it's not my normal nature. A tad overconfident, I think, is how you would do it. Yeah, mm. I would say that it was a bit more than that. Yeah, he was. He was mainly an artillery general. He he, he thought he'd got a new scientific method of, of concentrated guns so that he could almost guarantee success. Mm. So a devastating opening barrage, then a creeping barrage would range right behind the German front lines, allowing the infantry to penetrate deep behind the whole defensive system, even overrunning their German artillery lines. Now, this is A, not particularly new, and B, not particularly um, easy to do at this stage without, without, uh, without better tanks and the rest of it. it it's, it's a, what, what, what is he looking to achieve? As opposed to bite and hold. This isn't bite and hold. No, no, this is, this is a return to the concept of a real breakthrough, of smashing the, uh, the, the spectre of trench warfare once and for all. Who'd like that? Well, the French politicians, for one, they're, they're deeply aware of the extent of war weariness amongst their people. And they were interested, well, frankly, more than interested wow. in what the uh, charismatic General Nouvelle could yeah, offer. Yeah, the other thing, I mentioned he was part Scottish. I'm not even sure if that's true. I always just say that to annoy my Scottish friends. But the other thing he's good is he is charismatic and, and he's, uh, he's, he's got the fleur de bouche. Oh, dear, there's a cream for that. He might say that. He, he was he was plausible. He could explain himself. He he was wonderful. Um, so what's so, he do? What's he do? Well, he immediately discards all Joffre's plans. He plans a gigantic offensive by the French to seize the Chemin des Dames. That's uh, above, behind, as you look at it, on the River Ain in April 1917, mid-April 1917. Every available French gun will provide a devastating bombardment that, and then two massed French armies would smash their way by mm, brute force um, with a third army ready to exploit the uh, anticipated breach. He promised, uh, he promised victory within 48 hours, which is how many days, Gary? Two. You're on the ball today. Or a couple. Or a couple. <laughs> Although, yeah, so... Now, how do you how do you think the British? How do you think Haig reacts to this? Well, they'd be they they were almost dumbfounded to find that the French were willing to take up the cudgels in this uh, quixotic. quixotic manner. I wondered if you could say quixotic. Now, previously, Joffre had applied near ceaseless pressure on Haig for the British to pick up their fair share of the fighting on the Western Front, more fighting, and also take over more, more of, of the, the line. line. But now Nivelle was cheerfully volunteering to bear the main burden. Is there a catch? Well, uh, he did require the British to take over a substantial extra sector of the French line from the Somme to the Wies in order to release the troops and guns needed to carry out his offensive. Or does he just want anything else? No, he also wanted Haig to launch a major diversionary offensive between the Scarpe and the Ancre rivers. Ah, Uh, that's back to that, uh, almost, that original uh, plan, part of the original plan. Yeah, and that would later become the Battle of Arras. But now it's a diversion. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Now, um, so who, who's... Uh, the, uh, but Brit- Britain's still the junior partner. Let's, always let's, is. Yeah, always let's is on the Western that. Front. Uh, and, and even in the, the, the main Allied defences plan for 1917, they're the junior partner. So uh, Haig is wary, I think, uh, of, uh, of uh, agreeing to the large increase in the British Front, but he does. And the, may, the, the plan's overall are finally accepted January 17. At a, a London conference, uh, where Nivelle uh, presents his ideas to Haig, who is ambivalent but goes along with it, Chief Imperial General Staff, that's uh, Robertson, uh, William Robertson, one of our favourites, and various members of the British government, uh, who would be politicians. Uh, Nivelle is attractive. Well, he had an attractive personality. Oh, yeah. He was soldierly. Eloquent. And he had the natural confidence to sell his ideas to the British politicians who, frankly, wanted to hear something like this. And what did they normally have? <laughs> well, gruff, miserable. They normally had Haig, so there's a contrast there, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, uh, you can over exaggerate how uh, inarticulate Haig is, but he isn't, he's best on paper. He's not particularly, he doesn't, who doesn't he like? 
Well, Besides, he certainly doesn't like David Lloyd George, <laughs> um, who replaced Herbert Asquith in December 1916 as British Prime Minister. So what, uh, there is one thing, and one thing, you can go too far in attacking Lloyd George, he, because him and Haig had one thing in common. What was that, Gary? Well, it was a belief that the total mobilisation of the country was necessary if they were ever going to win the war. So what does Lloyd George think of Nivelle's plan? Well, he very much approves of it. He was a, a, a general that offered a guaranteed, guaranteed. Politicians method like of guarantees. breaking the deadlock on the Western Front without the pain and sacrifice of manpower associated with the horrors of the Somme or some ghastly Flanders bloodbath. Mm, that's what Haig's offering, of course. Uh, Lloyd George, well, he's not normally known for favouring an attack on the West Front. Where's he, where's he want? And both of them are clearly insane, but where, where does he... <laughs> well, he, he clearly uh, favours attacks through Salonica uh, or Italy. Well, what's he looking for? Well, he's looking I for, can see one he's, from here. He's not the only one, is he? But he's looking for the soft underbelly to, I can see a soft to underbelly. evade fighting <laughs> the Germans directly. And in a sense, Nivelle was offering another easy option for the British Empire. And what do politicians like? They like easy options. They do, they and do. And soft underbellies. So true, the, the offence is going to be on the Western Front, but the French, are, they're, going to, they're going to pay the butcher's bill on most of it. And uh, Haig... He's, he doubts the feasibility of, of, of Nivelle's plans, but he, he's got no problem with the French flinging themselves forward, really. Um, and if, after all, it does still mean that the main effort's going to be on the Western Front. And Haig, what is Haig above all? He's a Westerner, as is Sir William Robertson. Now, uh, there is, by this time, and we've been through a lot of this, but this is revision to put you all in the same place when we start the, the, this series of talks properly, uh, Air War uh, Arras. Um, so so uh, th- there's a new element to, a new dimension in, in, in war. Well, what is it? What is it that's new that might impact on air war? Well, it's aircraft. Aircraft, it? by this time, they're taking their place at the very forefront of any tactical considerations. Um, photographic reconnaissance, it was at the centre of their role. Cameras clamped to the outside of the aircraft allowed the development of a photographic map of everything directly below that aircraft. Yeah, and they also, if you took, if you canted up an angle, you could take, or, or use a different camera system, you could take oblique photographs, which are at an angle and allow you to. Uh, well, you could. It's it, it gives you a, a picture of what what men can see. It, it shows you what's beyond the hill in a way that junior officers can understand uh, the hidden ground across which they'd be advancing. Yeah. So, uh, are they taking say one or two a day of these? No, by 1917, thousands of photos. Thousands. Thousands of. Thousands. Them. Yeah. Now, once they're safely down on the ground, they had to be quickly developed and duplicated if they were to be of any real Why? value. Why quickly? Well, because things change. Do you mean the Germans? The Germans. Well, you're going to be Second Lieutenant George Banting of 34 Squadron RFC. No, I think this is one of the most exciting quotes you've ever given me, Pat. (laughs) I must admit, my knees are trembling as I look at you. With the crude equipment then in use, dry prints were produced 35 minutes after the aircraft had landed. The photographic hut was divided into four main compartments. The first of these was for developing plates, the second for exposing and developing of prints, the third for the drying of prints, and the fourth for plotting and the making of mosaics. Plates, after fixing and washing, were immersed in methylated spirit and, while still scarcely dry, were placed in enlargers and prints taken. The prints were treated in a like manner and passed in dishes of methylated spirits into the drying room. Here, they were separately held over a flame and burnt until dry. Two prints were taken from each negative, and as these reached the plotting room, they were marked with the date, height and map references, and these figures were then copied onto the negative itself. The British intelligence officer was responsible for choosing the negatives from which prints for distribution to the various headquarters were to be made. That was... Oh, absolutely fascinating. <laughs> no, but it is. Do, do you know? But this is the nitty gritty. This is what the personal experience accounts give you. You have to know. That's how they got them. They've got to be. There's no point taking photographs if you don't accurately print them and then disseminate them. So there you go. 
so what 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 new art uh, we've discussed before? What new set of skill set? A new skill set arises. What would you say that was, Gary, as a result of all these photies? Well, I'm assuming you mean the art of photographic interpretation, which was quickly born as a result. So what? Let's what what could you see? Let's go through a list. Go on, spit them out at me. What's well, first? For, for starters, you could see German gun batteries, even if they're camouflaged. Yeah, even if camouflaged, machine gun posts. They stood revealed. Dugout entrances, footpaths. Headquarters, Headquarters, yeah. Any changes in any trench system? Yeah, it was all immediately obvious to the experts. To experts. So you and me looking at one of these maps probably wouldn't see much, but the experts could. Now, uh, what's the, who takes these photographs? Well, it's the uh, ubiquitous B2Cs <gasps> and variants, uh, which were the mainstay of the Army Cooperation Squadrons of the RSC. Let's go through their names. B2C, <laughs> B2E, B2C... B2F, B2G, B2H. A roll call of honour, Gary. Absolutely. And they painstakingly photographed every square inch of the opposing German lines. But that's not the end of the uh, of, of what the aircraft can offer, is it? We've done all this. What what else? What 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 Well, artillery observation was just as important. Once the uh, technological problems of getting a wireless transmitter and aerial aloft in an aircraft had been overcome, fertile mines... Ooh. You've got fertile mines. Well, it seems to be a bit fertile today. <laughs> they soon solved the conundrum of one-way communication. And with the introduction... Why don't they have two wirelesses, one incoming and one outcoming? Or why don't they have one that does both? Because they didn't have the technology to do that. And it would time. be too heavy to have both. You wouldn't be able to fly. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, I'm not sure you could fly anyway for the same reason. Now, they introduced uh, the ubiquitous clock code, which I struggle to understand. You do, Gary. uh, Whereby an aircraft could provide the corrections that would rain shells directly onto targets that were completely invisible from the guns or their forward observation posts on the ground. Because the Germans are normally on the top of a ridge or be more likely in reverse slopes. Invisible, except from the air. Now, continuing our trend of exciting quotes... The following quote is staggeringly dull. Are you reading this one as well? But it is crucial to understand why so many young men sacrificed their lives during the Battle of Arras. And you are going to be Second Lieutenant Francis Penny of 12 Squadron RFC. The method of communication between the aircraft and battery was by means of a Sterling Spark transmitter with a trailing aerial of about 150 feet used by the observer or the pilot to send messages in Morse code to the battery. A series of code letters were used denoting, this is by the battery, are you ready to fire? Fire! <laughs> Always, of course, prefixed by the code number of the battery with whom we wish to communicate. Sorry, that's the aircraft sender. The battery replied by placing wide strips of white cloth on a dark background in a single code letters acknowledging the message received from the aircraft. You see, I'm getting confused by it all already. And that's got to be visible from the aircraft. So are they big? They're very big. They're about six yards long or something. These letters can be seen quite easily. Uh, As for this type of operation, we normally flew at an altitude of two to 5,000 feet. The actual position of the enemy battery was marked on a photograph, and from the centre, three concentric circles were drawn, donating X equals 25 yards, that's one circle around the target, Y equals 50 yards, Z equals 100 yards, also giving north, south, east and west positions. Always now ready to commence the shoot. The observer then sent a message to the battery asking, Are you ready? If in the affirmative, the observer sent by code the letter G for the first gun to be fired. The pilot having manoeuvred the aircraft in such a position so that the observer could see both the flash of the gun as it fired and the burst of the shell. Watching closely, the observer would note the actual position where the shell had burst and advise the battery accordingly. For instance, if the shell burst at ZN, it indicated that the burst had taken place 100 yards north of the enemy battery position. Our battery would then adjust their sights accordingly and the same procedure continued with each of the four howitzer howitzers until all guns were ranged correctly onto the enemy target when the observer gave the signal GG when all guns fired as quickly as they could be loaded. Now that's interesting because the ZN, I normally know that as the clock, this isn't the clock code, that's very interesting that you've given me that to read knowing it to be the wrong thing because the clock code, it wouldn't be ZN, it would be Z1 and that would mean, uh, that would mean um, uh, 100 yards at 1 o'clock from the central position 
and the clock code. So they, I, I don't understand. I understand why you don't understand it when it's like that. So if it burst at, uh, for instance, uh, what was the other one? A uh, hundred yards out, that would be Z, and say that was at uh, six o'clock, that would be to the. To, this, uh, to, the six, to six o'clock. Yeah. So that's what the system is. So that's that's quite interesting that uh, you thrust that upon me. Yeah, well, you know, as you say in your notes, the clock code may seem relatively simple. But it can be buggered by the selection of the wrong quote. Absolutely. <laughs> now, are the implications... What are the implications of clock code? Well, unseen indirect targets could be carefully registered by batteries, which could then hold themselves in readiness to open up a devastating fire as and when required. However, hostile German batteries, once identified, could be systematically targeted and eliminated as threats. Before, before you go over the top. Before then. you go Brilliant. over the top. Now, uh, does anybody notice this sort of work? Well, the Germans... Well, they're doing it themselves. Yeah, the Germans... Who, who would know it? The Germans clearly recognise the importance of uh, aerial army cooperation, and they placed it at the heart of their considerations in deploying their... Deploying? Deploying their aircraft. And you're going to be General Otto von Bilov. Bilov. Uh, I'm, I know how to pronounce German words, Gary. You've He's at uh, the headquarters 6th German Army, and, and he says... He say? The main object of fighting in the air is to enable our photo registration and photo reconnaissance to be carried out and at the same time to prevent that of the enemy. All other tasks, such as bombing raids, machine gun attacks and even distance re- uh, distant reconnaissance in trench warfare must be secondary to this main objective. So long as the execution of the main task is not ensured, all available forces must be employed for this purpose. So you, uh, that's the priority. Now... In 1916, the German Air Force uh, had been reorganised. Uh, so how was it reorganised? Well, long-range reconnaissance for the headquarters staff was a responsibility. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerising gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...of the Flieger Abtelungen. Now, they, 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 they were better than things like the B2C... Oh, far, much better. Far Why? How were they better? Well, if, in performance, in both speed and altitude ceiling, to anything the British Army had in uh, at the time for cooperation. So better sense. than the SOP with one and a half strutter, our other favourite as well, which was also used on that. With three struts. Now, so what else? Well, how else did they reorganise it? You can see I'm trying to avoid saying certain words. Yeah, the, uh, the local reconnaissance and direct artillery cooperation required by the infantry, that was supplied by the Flieger Abteleingung Abtelungen Alpha. A. Alpha. <laughs> oh, right. They too were better equipped than their British counterparts. Now, uh, so, uh, so, 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 uh, um, so that's the aerial reconnaissance. And then they had their jasters of scouts, which are, which are of course, not reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, and they, we'll, we'll come back to that. Now, is there anything else that the Germans had to, to carry out these functions of re- aerial reconnaissance? Yeah, I mean, as with the Allies, they supplemented their aircraft with kite balloons with observers directly connected by telephone ranging the artillery. What's the advantage of that? Come on, come on, come well, on, they can stay up there all day. Well, can't uh, aircraft stay up all day? Well, no, for obvious reasons. Oh, and yeah. uh, and 
they had severely uh, they could severely restrict any movement by the opposing side within their range of vision because they could immediately call up artillery intervention. Yeah. Now, which is why they were themselves quite a target. They were a hell of a target, and we will be covering that during the, the course because the balloon attacks become very important in uh, April 1917. Um, now, no, no, enemy, no army can allow this sort of thing, this photographic and artillery observation. So they've got to try and stop it. And this is where the scout squadrons, the British scout squadrons, and the German jasters come in. Uh, they've got the first machine guns taken up by 1915. The first scouts have arrived, the famous Fokker and. Um, and other d- uh, aircraft, uh, and uh, th- there was a sort of escalating battle uh, f- to, to, to gain um, to gain domination, and it, it becomes very important because of the importance of what the scout planes could secure. But that's not that that is basically to secure the photographic and artillery observation, is it? Um, but who gets the glamour, do you think? The core aircraft doing the, 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 the mundane work or the scout pilots? Well, unfortunately, it's the scout pilots. And, uh, they, They're they reasoned in glamour, aren't they? Well, they are. And, and, and ever since, this allure has deflected attention from the real allu- role. you find them alluring? I find them very alluring. Oh, look, there's an alluring scout, I say. <laughs> I think you really ought to think about what you just said. So you find a Boy Scout No, the Scout aircraft team. Right, OK. Right. Now, for the British, in 1916, the RFC Army Cooperation Squadrons, they were charged with a series of onerous interlinked tasks. Well, this is... This is... Uh, this is... Uh, 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 the thing. So the first one is the fo- they've got to do the photographic reconnaissance and artillery observation. They've got to fly contact patrols during attacks. Why is that? See where they've got up to. Yes, yeah, absolutely. They, they not greatly, but bombing raids to disrupt communications and arrest the Germans in their rest billets. Right, that's and later. That, 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 no, no, no. That's that's right. But that's that's pretty well. And that, 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 those three, and, and they've got to do, of course, all the artillery observation. Now, the main corps aircraft that had to carry all this out. What was it? It was the B two C. And what were the other letters that were involved in this? E. D E F G H. Yeah, and and that's been described as a as a, a, a steady platform, hasn't it? The B two C. Yeah, but I'm going to be Lieutenant Cecil Lewis. Famous. Why? Well, I just want to be uh, nine nine squadron RFC, who was very plummy voiced. The B two C was totally unsuited to the job, of course. It, 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 it had the observer in front and the pilot behind. Whereas, with any sense, it should have been the pilot in front and the observer behind. Uh, but it wasn't. So the observer sat in a cockpit with four struts very close each side of him, wires to brace him well in and in, and in front and none behind. And a little seat he could just get into. And he really could do nothing at all except keep a lookout. When it got at all hot and you were liable to be attacked from the tail as much as anywhere else, he simply had to get up on his seat, kneel on the seat, which was a jolly cold, drafty business at 8,000 feet, even in the summer. And then he had to try and fire, to, he had to try and fire his, uh, his uh, Lewis gun back over the tail, just kneeling, not shooting the pilot who was... Just behind him. It's ridiculous measure. We'll put a picture of the BE2C. Now, why? Why are they still using the BE2C and de- derivatives in early 1917? Well, because when the BE2s were ordered in their thousands, thousands early in the war, no one had conceived of the necessity of anything other than, as I mentioned, a stable observation platform. Now they're facing far more agile German scouts and they're, and they're struggling for survival. Now, um, we'd better have an, another little bit of a, of a look uh, at, uh, at uh, just again, a bit of the history. It's, uh, back on the Somme, the Somme, which we, we may have mentioned in one or two podcasts. Did we, have we mentioned the Somme, about the Somme? Once or twice. Anyway, uh, we mentioned Brigadier General Hugh Trenchard. Um, Once or twice. And now, he is the, he's commanding the RFC on the Western Front. He, he commanded First Wing RFC, then he, he, he ascended. Now, who did he work particularly well with? Well, he works particularly well with Haig, doesn't he? And, and uh, Haig recognises Trenchard's um, particular contributions um, he does, and we're, uh, yeah. The, what what it, what is what un, what what for, for Trenchard? And we've just done this about th- two months ago. What what is what underpins everything? 
Uh, well, I underpinning everything was the principle that losses must be accepted to get the results required. Now, now you're going to read uh, a, a, a simple exposition of this, uh, uh, which means somebody else probably wrote it for him. No, not you. <laughs> I mean, Trenchard was like Haig, some, known to be somewhat inarticulate at the time. You're going to be Brigadier General Hugh Trenchard. Yeah, into the unlimited space in the air, the difficulty one machine has in seeing another, the accidents of wind and cloud, it is impossible for aeroplanes, however skilful and vigilant their pilots, however powerful their engines, however mobile their machines, and however numerous their formations, to prevent hostile aircraft from crossing the line if they have the initiative and determination to do so. The aeroplane is not a defence against the aeroplane, but the opinion of those most competent to judge is that the aeroplane, as a weapon of attack, cannot be too highly estimated. On the British front, during the operations which began with the Battle of the Somme, we know that although the enemy has concentrated the greater part of his available forces in the air on this front, the work actually accomplished by their aeroplanes stands compared with the work done by us, in the proportion of about 4 to 100. 4% would you say that was? Yes, that's one of my favourite statistics, that is. You're a great admirer of Trenchard's use of statistics. Yeah, yeah, he's obviously put a lot of thought into that one. You don't think he's just plucked that out of the I air? think that's a completely made-up number. <laughs> is that what you used to do in management? All the time. <laughs> Is that why the Crossrail project crashed to disaster? <laughs> I wasn't on Crossrail. <laughs> now, um, uh, so what was it? He had a simple concept, didn't he? It's relentless offensive patrols carried out by his scouts, penetrating deep behind the German lines. They, they, they were intended to beat back German aircraft, keep them as far away as possible from the vital front line areas, and accepting any casualties. Uh, and also, if a, an occasional German uh, scout broke through and, and attacked. Because who's going to be operating above the German and British front lines, above the trenches? It's going to be the artillery cooperation machines. And they, therefore, will be able to carry out their work relatively unmolested. Um, now, did this succeed on the Somme? This was the great test of, uh, of Trenchard, a great test of the RFC. Had they succeeded? Well, yeah, I mean, the RFC achieves an almost total domination of the skies above the lines and deep into the rear areas behind the German front. The, uh, who is uh, cross about that, would you say? <laughs> well, I, I presume you mean the uh, German infantry. Did they complain? They were constantly exposed from above while their own aircraft were conspicuous only by their absence, but they never mentioned it. No. <laughs> you say old soldiers never complain. Gasp! Well, the now, officers do. Now, in, in in September, something happens, uh, and we've again we've dealt with this, but it, it's all germane to the Battle of Arras. What what arrives on the scene that makes a hell of a difference to the the German response to British uh, British constant going across their lines? Well, it's a new single seater scout aircraft, the Albatross D one. What's uh, special about that? Well, it marks the advent of the next generation of scout aircraft. It's powered by the 160-horsepower Mercedes engine up to speeds that approach 110 miles per hour. Twin Spandau machine guns? Yeah, they're capable of firing 1,600 rounds per minute. Is that 800 each? Yes, and they completely outclass anything that the uh, the, the British have available to well, them. Well, most of them are only armed with the trusty uh, Lewis gun. The How many? Did. Um, um, How many I'm rounds? Not I'm not, it's written down. I'm not looking. I'm going 47. Yeah, 47 rounds. I think I've learned that now. Now then, And the what pilot, happens after 47 rounds, Gary? Well, the pilot's got to, he's got to attend to the uh, tricky task of changing the ammunition drum whilst in combat. Now, the German Air Force, we mentioned this, that they were, they were organised into hunting squadrons. And what were they called? Jagstaffen. Jag, Jag, no, I can't. Why did I try that? You got it pretty much right. Jagstaffen. Oh, wow. And, and what are they popularly known as? Jasters. That's it. And uh, what's the most important and most influential in the early days uh, in September 1916? Well, that will be Jaster 2, which was commanded by the uh, redoubtable Hauptmann Oswald Bolker. We've heard of him. We've we? recently done a podcast on Bolker. Uh, Can you remember too. anything about him? Well, I remember his friend crashed into him and he died. That, that, you told him that's a big part of the story. 
<laughs> well, I remember him as being a really bright bloke who, who had his his dicta. You must remember his dicta. It was often talked about in the mess. <laughs> yeah, his friend mentioned his dicta when he watched him die. Yeah, and uh, and uh, who who was one of his most famous acolytes? Oh, well, you'll, you'll be referring there to Leutnant uh, Manfred von Richthofen. Although I think his brother was in the same uh, squad. Later on, later on, not then, not then, no. Uh, that's uh, that's just a 11 or whatever. That's what I said, I think. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> Desperately trying to trick each other here. So, um, so, so, that, so that, who notices this? Who, who's got his finger on the pulse? Who goes... Hello, hello, hello. Trenchard. He uh, he detects the early signs of a German aerial renaissance. Now, you're going to read a letter he wrote back to the director of air organisation. We won't mention him again, but it's Lieutenant General, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sefton Branker. Don't get on the RO1! And he's back in London. Uh, this is you brilliant. don't know what I mean by that. <laughs> this is Brigadier General Hugh Trenchard. We are fighting a very big battle, and fighting in the air is becoming intense. The fighting will increase, I regret to say, and not decrease, and it's only a question of our keeping up longer than the Hun. If we cannot do that, then we are beaten. If we do it, then we win. I must warn you now that in the next ten days, if we get fine weather, I anticipate a very heavy casualty list. There are many more German machines than there were, fast and much better pilots, which have appeared on our front. You sound worried. No, he's not wrong, though, is he? He's completely right. He's absolutely right. Now, who uh, who could he get to support him? Who, who well, he, he successfully seeks the backing of Haig in campaigning for the earliest possible delivery of a new generation of British aircraft that he hopes would be able to contest the techn- technical superiority established by the Germans. And you get the honour of being General Sir Douglas Haig. The enemy has made extraordinary efforts to increase the number and develop the speed and power of his fighting machines. He has unfortunately succeeded in doing so, and it is necessary to realise clearly and at once that we shall undoubtedly lose our superiority in the air if I am not provided at an early date with improved means of retaining it. The result of the advent of the enemy's improved machines has been a marked increase in the casualties suffered by the Royal Flying Corps. And though I do not anticipate losing our present predominance in the air for the next three or four months, the situation after that threatens to be very serious unless adequate steps to take to deal with it are taken at once. Now he's writing that, um, that so he's basically saying we can get through the Somme. Let's hope there's no big battle planned for, say, April 1917, is what I'm thinking already. So, uh, back home, uh, well, this time you're going to be Lieutenant Sefton, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sefton Branneker. Um What do you think he's doing? He's trying his best, isn't he? Um, but, but who else might be competing with him in, in a world uh, at war? Well, Lieutenant Colonel Sefton Branneker says... Unless British aviation can carry more weight in the eyes of the government than it does at present, we must be prepared to face a very ugly situation at the beginning of next spring. Now, as you've mentioned, you can't just bring through the next generation of aircraft. And also, aircraft, designing and building aircraft demands what? Resources. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, have we just ordered loads of tanks? Have we just ordered loads of mortars? Have we just ordered... Have we, have we got to equip... It, there's a comp- a huge competition for resources, and the Royal Flying Corps is just one of, of several uh, agencies, as I believe you would have called it at TFL. Now, getting back to uh, to the front in uh, that autumn, Oswald Bolker, he's, he's proving to be a truly great mentor well, to his young all pilots. This, we? Yeah. And he's leading from the front. He, he, in fact, achieved some 40 victories on his own account. Now, inspired by his example, many of them begin to score regular victories. Well, they, they discover that they, they, they can realise that, that they have the superiority. Their aircraft, the Albatross D1, or these, they get another one there. Guess what they call that? Go on, Gary, guess what they call the next one in the series? Uh, the uh, Albatross D2s. Yeah. Uh, and that's also beginning to deliver, uh, to be delivered. And he, and 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 even when, and we, the podcast was quite sad about this, uh, the one we did on Volker. He's killed in this air action on the twenty eighth of October, nineteen sixteen. But 
in one real sense, what would you say about this this great well, you man? Could, you could argue that his work was done by that stage. Jaster two had learnt well and ripped often. Uh, he'd already shot down six aircraft by this stage, and he, he would take up the mantle. He'd, he'd, he'd become the new Bolko, if you like, yeah? Uh, I think you're right. Now, casualties uh, do, 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 do... So, the, 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 the Albatross strikes, scouts, lead from the front. They, they're, taking, they're taking a painful toll in the closing months of the Somme offensive. Uh, uh, other new uh, single-seater scouts arrive. Uh, can, you, can you pronounce these, Gary? What are they? Well, the uh, Halberstadt D2, yeah, the Roland D2, they do like that a D. One. They do like a D. The Roland D2, and you do the last one, The Faults. The Faults do two. They do two. They do two. Now, they're all perfectly good scout aircraft, but they're all overshadowed by the dramatic success of the Albatross. Now... Even though the casualties are rising, the RFC carries on delivering everything Haig requires right to the end of the Battle of the Somme. And, and what great lesson of aerial warfare has been learned? Well, that supremacy in the air meant the ability to keep Army photographic reconnaissance and artillery observation aircraft above the front, and the question of casualties incurred in doing so was almost immaterial. That's a hard lesson. But probably true, they had to keep doing it. And the losses on the ground would have been monumental had they not done so and provided that information. Now, when the battle peters out for the British in November 1916 and for the French in December, December. we like to mention that after our podcast with Dave O'Malley, uh, there's a general acceptance that uh, the RFC, although there's been disappointment on the ground, there's been no disappointment in the air. The, the, the RFC had done its job, hadn't it? They'd done a fantastic time. They've been tested in good times and bad. They never failed the artillery, and, 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 and therefore they hadn't failed the infantry who depended from, you know, for, the, for their lives on, on, on the success of them doing. Um, what would you, how would you sum it up, what the RFC had done on the Somme? Well, it, it, Arguably, the Battle of the Somme marked the moment when the uh, RFC finally came of age. 21. Seeing as we're doing a lot of purple prose lately. He's got the key to the door, never been 21 before. Now, Trenchard, he never tries to evade his responsibilities, either to his superiors or to the men under his command. And although he had the moral courage to order his pilots up whatever the odds, he also regularly toured the squadrons to ensure his men knew that he stood with them in the battle that raged. But uh, the thing about Trenchard, and we mentioned this in the podcast, he never goes what they call, in slightly uh, unfortunate terms, going native, in the sense of he doesn't take on, that. he doesn't start to become an RFC man. He knows the RFC is part of the army. Oh, he absolutely knows that the parent body, the army, um, you know, was... They're not being weaned. No, (laughs) they're not being weaned from them. And and he's right. (laughs) Now, now um, when the RFC was outclassed by the uh, swinging pendulum of aircraft design, or roller coaster as you would describe it, he had the good sense not to blame Haig. Trenchard knew not to blame Haig, yeah. definitely, yeah. He knew that if faults existed, they lay with the fledgling aeronautics uh, industry back in Britain. And in turn, Haig appreciated his efforts and after the Somme took the time to uh, summarise the varied achievements and services offered by the RFC in his official dispatches. And you're once more going to be General Sir Douglas Haig. The admir- Admiral, Admirable, Admirable, uh, Haig could never pronounce that word. Uh, no. The admirable work of this corps has been a very satisfactory feature of the battle. Under the conditions of modern war, the duties of the air service are many and varied. They include the regulation and control of artillery fire by indicating targets and observing and reporting the results of rounds, the taking of photographs of enemy trenches, strong points, battery positions, and photographs of giving the effect of bombardments and the observation of the movement of the enemy behind his lines. The greatest skill and daring has been shown in the performance of all these duties, as well of as well as uh, in bombing expeditions. Always an afterthought. Our air service has also cooperated with our infantry in their assaults, signalling the position of our attacking troops and turning machine guns <coughs> onto the enemy infantry and even onto his batteries in action. That also is not as big as it sounds at this stage, but it's the uh, Hagis as ever seeing the potential for these things more than actually what they're delivering by that time. Um, but there's a bit of a shadow. <clears throat> so the, the RFC's done so fab in the Somme 
But there's these two things going on. One, they're beginning to be technologically outclassed. And two, what's the other? The big shadow lying across them. Well, Hague had aggrieved at uh, Neville and Lord Lloyd George's behest that the Battle of Arras would start in early April 1917. And what's the problem there? Uh, well, there's no way that a new generation of British aircraft would be delivered in sufficient numbers to counter the Albatross menace in the few months that was available. So they're going to get buggered? Technical term, yes. Uh, so what, what, is, what does the RFC do? Can, it, can, 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 can Trenchard go to Hague and say, can you just postpone the offensive? No, no, somehow or other the RFC have got to Can, can, can Hague ask Nivelle to postpone? No, no, no. The RFC have got to continue to carry out its manifold duties in ever more obsolescent aircraft, whatever the human cost. Yet, Blimey. even with this prospect before them, with the German scouts increasingly running rampant, the morale of the RFC endured as they enjoyed simple Christmas festivities in the traditional style. I don't know why I put this quote in, but I like it. Uh, this is uh, You're going to be Second Lieutenant William Lidsey of uh, 16 Squadron, uh, Royal Flying Corps. Well, there's some great books on 16 Squadron. Spent the day quietly until the evening. 7 until? 7pm <laughs> saw the commencement of some dinner, to which 11 of us sat down. Nothing was left of a £21 turkey. Plum pudding flaming with brandy, for which occasion the lights were put out. A dozen of champagne and heaps of other little dainties. A highly successful dinner, for which we have to thank Madam, the landlady, who did the cooking. We then went round to the men's concert, found them making awful fools of themselves, disgustingly drunk. It was an excellent concert. An exceedingly drunk poilu, who came in from no one knows where, caused... The French chap caused great amusement by trying to embrace and kiss all the officers, one of whom, more inebriated than the remainder of this flight, embraced the Frenchie on the stage. We retired at 11.30pm to let the men go as they liked. Now, I've remembered why I put this quote in, Gary. Uh, and, and it's because for a lot of these people, up and down the Western Front, the, the Royal Flying Corps would be celebrating Christmas. Um, they don't know what's ahead of them. They don't know the Battle of Arras is coming up. They don't know that they're going to go. That, that it, they're going to have to start preparing for the battle. Not remember for the aircraft, it doesn't start on the 9th of April. It starts in January when they have to photograph every bloody inch of the whole battlefield from end to end, and also miles and miles deep. They've got to do all this, it, 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 and, and, and they don't know that. And, and yet all these people are having a great time. But do you know what? It's going to be their last Christmas for an awful lot of them, isn't it? Um, uh, because what's going to happen? Well, by Easter, there's a, a new sacrifice required in the cause of their country at Arras. That's almost a religious-like uh, symbolism you've uh, drawn out there, Gary. I, I congratulate you. Thank You'd you. have to do it. I wouldn't know. <laughs> now, this new series of pod podcasts... Pod, 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 pod. This new series of podcasts will follow this story. Now, if you want to know more, then read Peter Hart's Bloody That's April. That's me, Gary! Slaughter in the Skies of Over Arras. Bloody April. What did you want to call it, Pete? I wanted to call it Up the Arras, because that's what happened to them. And on that note... <laughs> Cheers, Pete. Up the Arras. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?